Because we've got a mouldy old dairy best suited for growing moulds, we thought, well, we'd better get good at something, and mouldy cheese would seem to be the, the, the best thing to, to have a stab at. Welcome to my podcast, Spirit and Spice. I'm Gilly Bashan, a writer and broadcaster with a passion for food. Not just the food on my plate, but the people and the stories behind it. So I'm in Tain at the Highland Fine Cheese Dairy with Rory Stone, who owns this dairy. You do call it a dairy, don't you? We call it a dairy because it just sounds a bit nicer. You know, it, it used to be Blarleith Farm. It's now Blarleith Industrial Estate because my parents sold it to another farmer who then made it into an industrial estate. Blarleith, I think, means low-lying, frosty. It's a sort of miserable bit of ground. And, and true enough, the dairy, which was originally the Springfield Brewery in Tame in 1890, and then was my father's milking parlour, and then we converted it in 1967 into what is now the dairy or cheese factory. It's in a frost hole. It's north-facing. We've got the bank, uh, which is the uh, the raised beach behind us. And uh, the rest of Tame could be you know, hitting crazy temperatures like up in the upper teens and we'll still have you know ice on the puddles down here and does that have an effect on the cheese it probably does i mean i keep saying my next investment for this place is some dynamite to get rid of it and start all over again <laughs> a lot of people would say oh you change the environment you know you you create your own atmosphere and your own premises no doubt about it but um but i'm dying for something that's easy to clean and where the paint doesn't flake and you don't find mold growing all over the place and but I suppose because it's a mouldy old dairy, it was the right thing was to get into mould-ripened cheeses. I love your cheeses, and one of my favourite Scottish cheeses of all time is Minga, mm. which is so aptly named. Tell us what Minga means. Well, I, I'm almost loath to look it up. Uh, my wife keeps finding urban dictionary definitions for Minga, which are thoroughly rude, to be perfectly honest, but I've always considered it just to be, if something's minging, it's a bit smelly, it's a bit grubby, it's a bit dirty, and I thought, it's a little orange cheese, and we do, we do orange pretty well in, in Scotland. Iron brew, uh, Nicola, <laughs> good Lord. Um, uh, we do ginger quite well, perhaps that's fair. <laughs> so uh, I just thought, you know, it, most of my life I've been trying to sort of de-Scottify the brand a bit because I think you get regionalised. Instead of Strathdon Blue and calling it under Glens and Bens and, and uh, uh, all the, the wonderful Scots words, I almost went the other way but minger is associated as a scots word more often than not mingin is used quite a lot in in the islands so the cheese itself because it's got brevibacterium linens which is this naturally occurring bacterium that loves to live in hot sweaty places and gives off that particular odorous well ming of old feet I thought it's a minger there's no doubt about it of course since then we've been having great fun you cut it in half we're trying to pack it as half a cheese and call it a wee minger and then I thought if we could get some sheep's milk we could call it you wee minger and uh, but anyway there's no end of fun yeah it's a lot of fun so I was talking to uh, one of your staff Grant earlier Mm -hmm. because he was dipping these mingers two at a time yes into an annatto brine solution rubbing them together why was that the yeasts develop very quickly and they become really quite mouldy on the, on the right. It's a white mould, which is associated more with camembert. By washing, we, we raise the pH on the rind and we promote this brevibacterium linens, which gives this very rampant smell. You'll find it on traditional Brie de Meaux or traditional camembert. Um, you will get a slight sort of brown uh, smear sometimes just underneath the mould. And that is brevibacterium. It's naturally occurring. It'll be in the drains and the downpipes all around the dairy. By washing it, you're flattening it down again. Yeah. And you're trying to keep all of the activity 
reversing in itself, so it's breaking down the curd. So it starts to sort of make it a little bit more molten in the middle. Um, and the annatto gives it that, that orange. But I always loved little smelly washed-drying cheeses, Epoisse and Pont-Levesque, and there was a lovely one in Ireland called Ardrahan, I don't know if it's still made, and Stinking Bishop, I'm a brilliant name for a cheese. And, and Minga is kind of like Stinking well, Bishop, isn't it? There's, there it's there are similarities. I still, yeah. I still bow down before Charles Martel as one of the, the, the gods of, of specialist cheesemaking in the UK, but, but even to be on the same page as, as uh, Stinking Bishop is a delight for me. Somebody decided to do a really smart tasting menu, so you had a different wine accompanying every course. And they got to uh, Minga cheese, was one of the courses served up on a flapjack with some sauterne or something, a really nice, sweet, nutty pudding wine. Uh, but whoever typed it up missed the R off Minga, and it just said <laughs> cheese. Perhaps that was pushing it too far, but I believe it was genuinely a typo. Well, let's go and see these All cheese, right. okay? I'll follow you. It's a bit of a labyrinth in here, isn't it? It was once described by a technical guy from, from a, a supermarket chain as being a bit like the, um, the ghost train from Blackpool because he said it's full of cobwebs and old crones. <laughs> but they've all retired. You're really not selling your, uh, your dairy <laughs> to the public. We manage it, you know, and it's not the, it's not the easiest environment. So we make Morangy Brie. Um, it, it comes in, in many different names because we pick names to suit different markets, but Morangy is the best known, and that's our most traditional make. I'll just swing the door the other way for you There's so you can see it. It's a lovely fermented smell. It's like um, sticking my nose into a brewery. Well, and that is because of the yeasts that we're trying to develop on the cheese. And it is quite fruity, and the biggest problem with that is that fruit flies love it. You've got to be really careful because they, they get quite dizzy on it. I shouldn't be talking about flies and cheese, but well, uh, definitely not. I mean, this is, again, you're not really selling your dairy to <laughs> you us. Have to be terribly careful. <laughs> they love the smell. If you're not very on top of the premises and keep all your fly insecticutes, as they call them, in good order, you can you can have an infestation of of these little fruit flies coming Gosh. because they think it's just heaven. This is. What we have in this room, we're trying to keep it about 14, 15 degrees, trying to keep the humidity very high. Uh, but we don't want to dry the cheese out too much. A little bit of drying is good. That allows the geotrichum yeasts to develop both on, uh, on the Minga and on the Brie. But then after a time, we add penicillium molds uh, to the Brie and they take over. And that's what gives you that very sort of white clean look of a camembert. With the Minga, we, we don't add the penicillium, just the geotrichum, just the, the, the yeast and then uh, by washing it, it's helping to raise the pH and eventually the uh, brevibacterium starts to get going. We have to be careful, if you wash them for another couple of days, they start to go, they start to drip, they get really runny, and then they're just completely unmanageable. So it, that, that's, that's a bit of a nightmare. Because we've got a moldy old dairy, best suited for growing molds, we thought, well, we better get good at something, and moldy cheese would seem to be the, the, the best thing to, to have a stab at. It doesn't make the cheese sound so appealing, though, does it? In your next room, though, you've got another of my favourites, which is, um, is this not fat cow in Fat here? cow. We got a bit carried away, as I say, with these sort of de-scottified names of fat cow, uh, Blue Murder and Minger, and I unfairly suggest that they're all lazy pseudonyms for my wife's family. But um, <laughs> couldn't possibly mention which ones, of course. Fat cow, we don't use any annatto. Annatto is this plant uh, found in Central and South America, which gives a natural orange dye. On fat cow, 
nearly all the colour just comes directly from from the Breviobacterium, and it's a sort of I don't know how would you describe that? It's a browny brick brick red. It looks like the the outside of an ordinary white loaf. That's yeah. pretty good. But it can be a bit pinky to start with, and then yeah. it, it gently uh, colours in. Several things that are going on with washed rind cheeses. They're all basically lumped into the same bracket. They're mold ripened. So a brie is a mold ripened cheese. We're using molds on the outside to break the cheese to ripen it from the outside in. That's why when you know and it's sometimes you, it's not quite ripe and it's beginning to break down around the rind, but you've still got a bit of a chalky finger in the middle. Very, very traditional camembert will always retain that chalkiness right in the middle. So that's one version. Blue cheeses, Strathdon, Blue Murder, that's we're using the blue mold to ripen it from the inside out. But getting the surface to develop, getting the molds to develop on the surface requires a bit of manipulation of the pH on the rind. So we use yeasts, which quite like the lactic acid, and to help raise the pH. Brevibacterium, this very smelly one that we have on Minga, particularly likes the pH above 5.4. With fat cow, we don't do that at all. We just we do the salt wash, and we add a little bit of yeast to the salt wash, again, just to help raise the pH on the rind. But the brick brown comes purely from the Brevibacterium. We don't use any coloring in that at all we would like to mature it to six plus months because then you'll get lots of nice nutty flavors the sort of things you associate with comte gruyere um, lovely gouda i mean there are so many amazing goudas that's what we're hunting for we're in the job of preserving milk that's all we're doing with cheese making before pasteurization refrigeration sterilization what on earth would you do from the very moment it comes out from the cow or the sheep or the goat it's at its purest thereafter because it's a superfood, it's what we raise babies on, everything wants to get in there and live. And so you have to find a way of extending the life of the milk. So intrinsically, cheese should be a very, very safe food because that's exactly what we're trying to do is we're preserving it, we're dehydrating milk, we're making it a slightly toxic environment by acidifying it so bad bacteria doesn't want to live in it. That should mean that, that our daily job is quite easy, but there's very little formal training in the UK. There's, we've got great history in territorial cheeses, but now with people traveling uh, with food imports, people are experiencing new flavors, new tastes. They want something a little more funky. Uh, you know, the, the, there's still a great market for cheddar and, and uh, Dunlop and Wensleydale and Carefilly, but I think people are also moving towards the blues and breeze and washed rinds, and that's what the bit that we're trying to take. So I think after all my years as a cheesemaker, I think finally I know where all the dots are, but I'm just not always sure how to join them up. If I'd been born French, I would have spent at least three years at a dairy school before I was allowed anywhere near uh, a bucket of lukewarm milk. You just fell into it instead. I fell into the bucket, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so take us back to those days then, because it was your parents that it actually was. set up the dairy. After the Second War, my father came home from Burma and uh, came back to this very, very sparsely populated small part of the world where he was brought up. He'd gone off to London before the Second War and then fought through the whole thing, came back to this tiny little farm, Blarleith, which was about 90 acres of very ordinary land. And I think he had somewhere between 14 and 30 cows. They were bitterly poor after the Second War. I mean, you know, everybody was struggling. My mother came from a very wealthy family and then fell in love with this Highlander. I think she genuinely thought this would be the good life, would be so wonderfully romantic. So she arrived on this tiny little farm and brought with her five horses. Anyway, 
Uh, they had all sorts of difficulties. They were always at war with the milk officer or whatever and frequently banned from selling their milk because there was only three walls on the buyer or something wasn't working. And they were really struggling, you know, they weren't making any money. Um, and my father complained that nobody made crowdy anymore on the farm. And the milk marketing boards had nationalized the dairy industry of the UK for the war effort and also just to standardize things. So nobody made crowdy. And my mother thought she could, so she got a churn of dairy shorthorn milk and she put it in the family bath and farmhouse and she kept it nice and warm, which is traditionally what you would do if you want to make cruddy. It would naturally acidify. Eventually it comes to a point known as the isoelectric interval and it sets, and that's normally at about a pH of 475-465. Now my mother managed to get it to sour, but she couldn't get it to set. So my father said, well, hang on, I'll go and talk to my friend. Alan Robertson, who was the local pharmacist, also known as Shake the Bottle. And he came up with these little pills, and I think it was lacto lactoacidophilus or something, and he crumbled them up. It wasn't rennet, because if you rennet, it, it makes it more sort of rubbery and elastic. It's a different texture altogether. Mm -hmm. Use rennet perhaps for cottage cheese, but he was using this, this uh, just to push the acidity a little bit further. And then the next morning, and this was about four days later, they finally had occurred. My big brother was utterly delighted. I wasn't around, I wasn't even thought of at the time because uh, he hadn't had to have a bath for four days. So this formed occurred, but there was about 16 pounds of crowdy uh, in the churn because you then take out the curd, you scramble it like eggs, put it on direct heat. Then you drain off the whey by hanging it up in a muslin or a, or a pillowcase, add some salt. But that was rather more than my father wanted on an oat cake. And so she wrapped it up in greaseproof paper, put it up to Hecky Ross, the grocer in King Street in Tain. And uh, the next day he rang and said, can we have some more crowdy, please? It all sold. My grandmother used to make crowdy, but not nearly so scientifically. <laughs> um, just literally hanging it in her tights over the sink in the kitchen. That's but charming. It, it was never quite as perfect <laughs> as your crowdy. <laughs> well, everybody did, you know. I mean, it was a pretty ordinary diet. You had mutton, neeps, tatties, oatmeal, and roadkill, I suppose. The Highlands was traditionally cattle country. Yes. So every little croft had its own cow. And, and when you had a bit of spare milk from the flush, you'd make butter and you made a crowdy. Lots of people still talk about their granny's crowdy and how delicious it was, especially if it was still warm. Yeah, so you've got crowdy through here. We've got crowdy hanging today. Looking rather like uh, great big bulls' testicles. That's, that's them. We're, we're blue, blue, <laughs> blue testicles. <laughs> yes, I dread to think what happens next. It's very white because we take all the cream off. And traditionally, crowdy was always made with not fully skimmed milk, but partially skimmed because you didn't want to waste the cream. You wanted the butter, you wanted a fat store, something to cook with. But you can see it's a very, very white curd. And this particular one is quite crumbly and dry because we're going to add some flavors to that. We're going to put peppercorns in it. My parents had this sort of one-trick pony. They thought, well, we'll put in wild garlic leaf and chives and caraway seeds. They were just trying anything to extend that one product. And then we started making a sort of rancid butter rolled in porridge called kabak. Sort of a heart grenade. Uh, I, you know, it, 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 it's not very good for you. It's quite high in butter fat. It's not a taste of this era. It's a very mild, perhaps I should say subtle cheese, but it still has a market, amazingly, and I'm very rude about it all the time, and it's a pain to make because you have to mature cream for a long time and it ties up a lot of cash, but people still buy it. A lot of people go, is that really cheese? They don't quite get it. They think it's maybe a farmhouse butter we've just put in, in oatmeal. We didn't start making anything different until I took over in 94 to fully run the business and then in 98-99 we started making blue cheeses and then it's been a progression from there. So we started out with Strathdon Blue. We're nowhere near Strathdon. 
It was actually made by Aberdeen Milk Services, which was the old Twin Spires Creamery, or it was the Grampian and District Milk Marketing Board, I think, uh, in Aberdeen. And they were looking to do something that was a little bit different. And they thought, well, they dried milk and they sold milk on to people and they picked it up from all their farms and they thought they'd make a blue cheese. And they did a wonderful job with Janet Galloway from Ochen Crew from the Dairy College and they made this Strathdon Blue. Do you know, coming in here, I'm looking at all these uh, round, they look like cakes, sort of being smothered in butter icing. And there is actually a smell like butter icing in here. It is it's quite buttery and sweet. Yes, it's, it, I always wonder when people say something like that. I was at a whiskey tasting the other day and somebody said, ripe peaches. And you go, oh yeah, it's just as if they've given you that thing. And you go, would I have noticed that? Or, or, or have they just supplanted that in my mind? But actually, I think you're right. Butter icing, there is, there is something quite rich about it. Strathdon Blue had four potential names. Strathdon was one, the one luckily they picked. Highland Blue, Gordon Blue, and then they thought they might have come up with a gimmicky name, Yakana Wackett. Luckily, <laughs> that's not what I sell today. So we took this over when Twin Spires was bought over by Wiseman's, and they said, well, we don't want to make blue cheese. And so we went down with a mask and a sawn-off shotgun, and uh, they sold me the recipe and a lot of the kit oh, and caboodle. Wow. There was, yeah, well, obviously they had no choice. <laughs> But there was, it's so far away from Strathdon, you keep thinking, oh dear, but you know, people say, why is it called Strathdon and you're in Tame? But I think people still like to know that the milk comes from five local dairy farms. Yeah, people like the story like yes. that, dairy, and they like to know that it's local. So these round ones are Strathdon blue, but are these more rectangular ones, are they blue murder? Those are blue murder, and, and I've got to tell you that the absolute truth is that it's the same milk, uh, the same starter cultures, the same blue mold, everything is identical uh, but I would swear that there's a there's a difference in the flavor just because of the way the cheese matures it drains differently and some people find blue murder more creamy it started out as blue Monday we were making it for a the bass player from blur called Alex James and uh, who's great fun to hang around with it has to be said because he's obviously done so many narcotics and drank so much champagne <laughs> that he he's just full of fun and entertainment but then we had a terrible falling out. He started to sue me for lots of money. So he went off and made Blue Monday with somewhere else. And I had to rapidly change the name. So I was in a, a it was a pretty filthy mood. Uh, we had to change all the packaging and the whole thing was a disaster. So murder was the natural. That was exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> it was actually my lawyer who was having to talk to, to sort of defend against his lawyer. They were getting super aggressive. And he said, we were thinking about names the other day for your cheese because you're definitely going to have to change it or be in the court. And he said... One person said blue moon, but another person said blue murder, and I thought, oh yeah, it has to be. I think the emphasis will be on mold ripen from now on, but we'll always make the crowdies and the cabots. It's always useful to make a little bit of tame cheddar because it's a great place to put milk when you've run out of anything else to produce with it, so you can kick the can down the road, worry about selling that in a year. And I can honestly say I'm the best cheddar maker in tame. Uh, <laughs> and then for a while, we were making sheep's milk cheeses. And we made one called Fern Abbey, which was probably, the, I think, the best thing we ever made. So why don't you continue with that? Nobody bought sheep's milk cheese. It was really yeah. dire. And but it was, even now, would that be the case? Well, it was about two years ago. We stopped. I think we should give it another go because it's exactly, again, it's the same technology, but with different milk. And I have to say, you know, we used to stick it into competitions and we would be disappointed if we didn't come first, which sounds supremely arrogant. 
But it's not because we were good cheesemakers. It's purely because sheep's milk and goat's milk makes delicious cheese. It's yeah. absolutely heavenly. Future, apart from goat's milk and sheep milk? Well, yes, some dynamite for this old dump. Uh, I think there isn't a, a young stone in the uh, no. I've background. told them I'm paying a lot of money for their education, and they need to get a decent job with holidays, work for the government, you know, and with a pension fund, <laughs> do something sensible with your lives. I mean, I enjoy what uh, I do. It is. But you have to enjoy what you do. So, what yeah. if one of them wanted to come in? Do they enjoy cheese? They enjoy telling me when I've got it wrong. They don't hold back, children. <laughs> <laughs> you have to get it right between the eyes, you know, they tell you exactly what they think. Maybe but they've got a good word for your next cheese. Yes. One that we don't know, because it'll be one of the words that we know with a completely different meaning, but they use it differently. Well, there are those words they use a lot, like, like, or awesome. <laughs> awesome cheese. I do hope not. Oh, wicked. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I mean, if it was all about making money, I definitely would have had a career change by now. The thrill is that you'll never get to the end. You'll never make a perfect cheese. That merely means you've stopped trying. There's always got to be a way of improving upon it. Trying to make a little um, style like San, San Felician, uh, which is a lactic curd with a white mold on top, and it becomes wonderful and gloopy and ripe, and everyone I made was filthy. But I know that that's, that's another target for another day. So we'll keep pushing, we'll keep improving upon what we're doing, but the market has a voracious appetite for, for new ideas and new concepts. And so what happens to all your quay? Oh, that goes into a big tank and then goes down to a pig farmer. The pigs love it. It scours them out. It, they, they adore the taste of it. They, you, he uses it to carry their, their dry food. I've always tried to avoid trying to do ricotta or feta or mozzarella. They're wonderful products, but they tend to be commodity products. And, you, you know, we're not competitive. We're too far away. So I feel as if we need to focus on on doing these quirky oddball things when we have to send our cheeses 200 miles to, to the marketplace, when we have to travel 250 miles to pick up from our five farms. You know, you've got all those on costs before you even start. There must be a reflection of your character because you're the most blasé and relaxed cheesemaker I've ever come across. This sort of the feet are paddling underwater, <laughs> I can tell you. There's, there's a lot of... The blood pressures are... Well, anyway, you do make wonderful cheeses, so thank you for making the rest of us have so much joy on our plates. Thank you for your kind words. <laughs>